This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. By June 2014, the civil war in Syria has been going on for over two years and has no end in sight. The terrible human cost has of course taken centre stage in news stories, but the destruction and plundering of the country's ancient heritage is another tragic repercussion of the conflict, which will deprive future donations of so many cultural treasures. As one example, the city of Aleppo, once described as the jewel of the Middle East, now stands in ruins. The centuries-old marketplace, the Souk al-Madina, has been burnt to ashes. The citadel of Aleppo, a medieval fortress, containing what historians believe to be a 5,000-year-old temple, has been badly damaged by both government artillery and rebel bombs. Also badly damaged are the so-called dead cities, a series of up to 700 ruins dating back to the 1st century AD to the 8th a unique record of life in ancient times. The war has forced hundreds of thousands to live in refugee camps. One of the most notorious is the Palestinian camp of Yamuk, a suburb of Damascus, whose name comes from one of the most important battles in world history. The military commander who won that great battle, perhaps the person most responsible for the incredibly successful expansion of Arab Islamic power, in the 7th century, was Khalid ibn al-Walid. His mortal remains lay in the mosque named after him in Homs, that is, until they were desecrated, sometime during the war. Last week, Robert Fisk wrote in the newspaper The Independent, quote, When the last rebel surrendered, to be given safe passage from Homs under the eyes of the UN, and left behind a city destroyed, its ancient cities pulverised, its shops crushed beneath tons of masonry, its 7th century mosque of Khalid ibn al-Walid blasted by shellfire and bullets. Even the grave of ibn al-Walid himself, a companion of the Prophet Muhammad no less, lies amid rubble in one corner of the mosque, a green and gold cloth over his last resting place, the corners held down by breeze blocks. Rumour has it that the Wahhabi Islamists who fought here stole his body long before they left. Now today, at last, the full extent of Homs' martyrdom can be seen, street after noble street, shattered by bombs, tank fire, rocket-propelled grenades and Kalashnikov rounds, stately Ottoman offices gutted by flames, Roman columns tossed into gardens of shell-shorn tree trunks. The great Modern shops and city centre offices are reduced to rubble-filled skeletons. End quote. Wars are ugly and brutal. 
but they are an important part of history. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Yamuk, between the Muslims of Arabia and the Eastern Roman Empire. Part 1 of 2 will concentrate on the conflict between Constantinople and the Persians prior to Yamuk. In the last podcast, we looked at the Battle of the Catalonian Fields in 451 AD, when the combined Roman and Visigothic forces repelled the Huns of Attila. There were an exceptional number of casualties, but the result was the keeping of the status quo, a balance of power between the Huns, the Germanic tribes and the Romans. However, over the next years the empire continued to disintegrate. The imperial administration in Ravenna gradually lost control of most of its territory, displaced by the incoming Germanic tribes. Twenty-five years after the Catalonian fields, in 476 AD, the last emperor in Rome was deposed, marking the traditional time of the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. The occupant of the title of emperor at the time was a boy with the name Romulus Augustus. By this time it was clear to see, for all, that emperors were now nothing more than puppets, solely there as a pretense of continuity. The chief general, Odoasa, no longer required this facade and declared himself sole ruler as king of Italy. Romulus was sent away into the countryside, where he disappeared from the historical record. By this time, the Western Roman Empire had been reduced to just Italy, the Dalmatian coast, and pockets of nominal control in northern France and northwest Africa. The rest had been overrun by barbarians. Odoasa tried to seek approval from the emperor of the eastern half of the empire, Zeno, asking for the title of patrician, normally granted to powerful non-Roman allies, and expected or hoped to be able to govern in the emperor's name. The barbarian impact did not therefore involve an immediate and total destruction of Roman traditions. Imperial patterns of government survived and were even preserved by the newcomers. The more prosperous eastern half of the Roman Empire, on the other hand, had survived the barbarian invasions, mostly intact, and retained the whole eastern Mediterranean round from Greece to Anatolia, the Levant, Egypt and eastern Libya. Its capital city, Constantinople, was the largest and most powerful city in the world at about half a million strong. By this time, the two halves of the empire had been operating independently with minimal cooperation, so the immediate effect on Constantinople of the deposition of Romulus Augustus was not great. It had weathered the barbarian invasions better than the West, partly since it had always been the more prosperous half, and had often succeeded in paying off barbarians in return for not being attacked. Also, Constantinople had excellent defences. Situated in the Bosporus, where the Black Sea joins the Mediterranean, where the city was not enclosed by the sea or mountains, it was protected by formidable walls. Any barbarians coming to these walls would soon give up in favour of easier plunder. The Eastern Empire was by this time mostly Greek-speaking, but had a highly diverse ethnicity, including at the upper echelons of power. 
the different peoples had assimilated more fully and over a longer period of time than the Germanic tribes in the West, having been Roman subjects for five centuries. The Emperor Zeno, on the throne, during the deposition of the last Western Emperor, was from a group of people called the Isaurians, who came from the Taurus Mountains in central Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Domestic revolts and religious dissension plagued his reign, but he contributed much to stabilising the Eastern Empire, as did his successors Anastasius and Justin. When the next emperor, Justinian, succeeded, his uncle Justin as emperor, the area under his direct control remained more or less what it had been in Diocletian's time. Berber incursions into Libya and Egypt had reduced the security of non-fortified settlements, and pushes on the eastern and Danubian frontiers caused a certain instability. But no major losses had occurred. In areas beyond the Mediterranean world that had never been conquered, imperial culture was still influential. The contacts of the east made by Alexander the Great, which had been extended by the Emperor Trajan into the Indian subcontinent, appeared to have continued into the 6th century. Commerce thrived between east and west. In his long rule, from 527 to 565, Justinian attempted to re-establish imperial control over the old western half of the empire, especially Rome. After decades of war and a mixture of successes and failures, he did realise his ambition in large parts of Africa, Sicily and southeastern Spain, but at the loss of much life and the depletion of the imperial treasury. During his reign, a terrible plague struck the empire, killing a significant part of the population. To make matters worse, it was only the beginning of an infection cycle that was to repeat every generation for the next two centuries. Many historians mark his reign as the transition from late antiquity into the Middle Ages, and begin to use an alternative name for the empire, Byzantium. As an example of the transition, Justinian is believed to be the last emperor to have spoken more Latin than he did Greek. Despite that it's important to note the Byzantines always refer to themselves as Romans. Justinian's nephew and successor, Justin II, faced with a depleted imperial treasure, attempted to save money by refusing to pay off the Persians, but this led to a disastrous war in which the Persians overran Syria. In the meantime, the Lombards invaded Italy from the north and soon took control over most of the peninsula. His successor, Tiberius II, did his best to recover lost lands, but had to cope with attacks from all sides. Germanic tribes in Italy, a Turkic people called the Avars in the Balkans, as well as Slavs in Macedonia and Greece, and Persians in the east. On his deathbed, Tiberius named his son-in-law, a general called Maurice, to be his successor. Once he became emperor, Maurice brought the war with Persia to a victorious conclusion. The empire's eastern border in the Caucasus was vastly expanded, and for the first time in nearly two centuries, the Romans were no longer obliged to pay the Persian thousands of pounds of gold annually for peace. Maurice also campaigned extensively in the Balkans against the Avars, pushing them back across the Danube by 599. In Italy, Maurice established the Exarchate of Ravenna in 584, the first real effort by the Empire to halt the advance of the Lombards. 
and with the creation of the Exarchate of Africa in 590, he further solidified the emperor's hold on the western Mediterranean. Despite some ups and downs, the Roman Empire was still the most advanced state of the ancient world. She was still the dominant force in the Mediterranean, although her most enduring foe, the Persians, continued to challenge her in the Middle East. The long-running conflict between the two empires had been characterised by brief periods of intensive but ultimately indecisive fighting. After nearly 700 years of intermittent fighting, the frontier had not moved all that much, east or west. Any conquest that had been either limited in scale or ultimately ephemeral, with the two empires changed little by the experience. The first half of the 7th century would be very different. In 589, the Persian aristocracy overthrew their king and replaced him with his son, who became Khusru II. Soon after, however, the new king faced a coup himself and was forced to flee. Before the end of 590, he found himself in Roman Syria and was quickly escorted to Constantinople. Maurice, seeing an opportunity to reach a peace with Persia while making some gains, agreed to send an army to help Khusru regain his throne. The combined army, led on the Roman side by the commander Narses, defeated in battle the usurper and restored Khusru as ruler in his capital, Tessaphon. In return, vast numbers of cities and territories in Armenia, the Caucasus and Mesopotamia, including Dara, Manzikur, Yerevan and Ani, to name a few, were ceded to Maurice by Khusru. This closing down of the Eastern Front for the first time in nearly 20 years allowed Maurice to turn his attention to the long-overlooked problem of the Danube provinces. The Roman army's diversions in the East and Italy had allowed the Avars to take over the Danube region and approximately around modern-day Hungary, Serbia and Romania at the same time as large numbers of Slavs started entering the region. By the beginning of the 7th century, however, Maurice had successfully pushed back the invaders back to their homelands, and the barbarian raids were greatly reduced in frequency. But the emperor, despite these victories, had made himself unpopular among the common soldiers by his financial reforms, which tried to reduce expenditure. In 602, the armies of the Danube mutinied and marched on Constantinople. Maurice found that he had little military support to stand up to the mutineers and fled the capital, and the Balkan army placed their leader, Focus, upon the throne. The new emperor dragged Maurice from his sanctuary and murdered him and his family. This coup would prove catastrophic for the Roman Empire. In the eastern provinces, Narses refused to recognise Focus as emperor and established a personal power base in the city of Edessa, in Mesopotamia. The now rebel turned to the one man willing and able to provide him with aid against Phocus, Khusro. The Roman infighting provided the perfect pretext for the Persian king to launch his armies across the border, where he relieved his new allies' forces at Edessa. But at this point, Narses, probably realising the Persian danger, made a U-turn and made a trip to Constantinople to offer peace. This was an opportunity for reconciliation, but Phocus, after first promising safe conduct for the general, seized Narses and supposedly burnt him alive. The historian Peter Crawford, in his book 
the War of the Three Gods, wrote how in this one ill-considered act of vengeance, Focus removed perhaps his best hope for settling the Eastern situation. For not only was Narses his best general, he had an existing relationship with Kusra. The Persian armies spent the next half-dozen years in an invasion of Mesopotamia, Syria and Armenia. Although slowed down by a series of time-consuming sieges, especially the Roman-held fortress of Dara, the invading forces made significant progress, thanks to the inaction of Phocus, most likely forced to stay in his capital to counter a number of conspiracies against him. Phocus had become deeply unpopular due to displays of great cruelty in dealing with political foes, as well as for his failures to counter the threat from the east. Most crucially, he alienated himself from those essential to running the empire, the bureaucratic class and the clergy. So when in 610, the son of the Exarchate in Africa, Heraclius, attempted to seize the throne with an invasion of Constantinople, Phocus could find little support to defend himself, and was soon overthrown and murdered himself. By the time Heraclius came to power, the Persians under King Khusro had conquered Mesopotamia and the Caucasus. In the beginning, the new Roman emperor was no more successful than the last. In 611, the Persians overran Syria and entered Anatolia. A major counter-attack led by Heraclius two years later was decisively defeated outside Antioch. In the year 614, the Persian commander Shabaraz took Jerusalem after a siege in which they were assisted by the local Jewish population. The chronicler Strategius wrote that in response to anti-Jewish riots prior to the siege, the Jews now retaliated by committing a massacre of Christians. Probably these allegations were exaggerated, but they do point to the ill feeling between the two communities and the anger at the Christians for the Jews siding with the enemy. In addition, Constantinople seemed to have lost the active support of much of the local Christian population. This was in large part due to a sharp theological divide concerning the nature of Christ, which had developed over the centuries. They may not have actively supported the invaders, but their reduced loyalty meant that they were no longer willing to risk their lives for the imperial cause. The loss of Palestine sapped the morale of the Romans and effectively split the empire into two, physically separating its African provinces from the rest of its territory, and so hampering the coordination of resistance. In the next two years, the Persians were able to conquer Egypt and also make incursions deep into Asia Minor, even as far as the city of Chalcedon, just across the Bosporus from Constantinople. At the same time, the Avars and Slavs took advantage of the situation to overrun the Balkans and bring the empire to the brink of destruction. The loss of territory had a terrible impact on the economy, especially the loss of Egypt, where most of empire's bread was produced. The Romans could be forgiven for believing they had swapped one ineffective leader for another. However, in spite of its successes, the Persian advance was not without vulnerabilities. So swift had their progress been that they found their lines of communication and logistical support overstretched. There was little evidence they were able to recruit the local population of their newly conquered territories into their ranks. Persian armies also lacked discipline and relied greatly on mercenaries.
Heraclius had to devise a strategy to exploit these potential weaknesses and rebuild morale. His response was to lead an army himself, attacking deep into Persia. And so in 622, the emperor reformed what remained of his Balkan field armies. At the risk of leaving the western frontier vulnerable to the Slavs and Avars, he calculated that the major cities, such as Constantinople and Thessalonica, would be able to resist, and that the Persians were the greater threat. On the 5th of April, 622, the imperial army set off from Constantinople and marched east into northern Anatolia, gathering together the scattered remains of the Roman army. Most likely, the combined forces were a multi-ethnic mix, including what remained of the Egyptian, Armenian and Balkan armies, plus whatever barbarian forces Heraclius had managed to coerce into serving, such as Berbers from North Africa and perhaps Germans keen to avoid Avar repression. The route he took is much discussed, but most likely he marched east along the coast of the Black Sea. The Persian general Shabaraz attempted to block the roads and mountain passes in Armenia, but underestimated the speed at which the Roman army moved. After several days of manoeuvres and counter-manoeuvres between the two sides, Heraclius found the opportunity he was looking for. Through careful deployment of scouts, the emperor discovered that Shabaraz had laid an ambush. A carefully selected selection of the Roman army made out as if they were falling into the ambush, before making a feigned retreat. The Persians, seeing a small number of the Roman army fleeing, charged after their foe in a disorderly manner, allowing Heraclius's elite guard to counter-attack and force the Persians from the battlefield. The losses were minor, but the encounter gave the Romans an important boost to their morale. It also taught Heraclius some very valuable lessons on how to best exploit the Persian defences. The next year, Heraclius was forced to fend off an attack from the Avars, but in mid-624 he led a second expedition from Constantinople into Persia, this time with a larger army, a force of somewhere between 25 and 40,000 men. The emperor caught the Persians off guard and was able to penetrate deep into the enemy territory before being confronted. Khusro himself led an army to counter the invasion force, but was again defeated with minor losses. In a series of skirmishes and battles, Heraclius repeatedly outwitted the Persian leadership, who must now have started to seriously worry. By the end of 625, the results had been inconclusive. No decisive victory was achieved by either side but the ability of Heraclius to inflict the damage he did were major blows for the Persian king, who had now been forced onto the back foot. Keen to avenge these humiliations and nip this Roman revival in the bud, in 626, Khusro directed his forces to attack the last bastions of the Roman Empire, including Constantinople. And that year the Persians were not the only Roman worry. The Avars were back outside the walls, of the imperial capital, whose forces now had to fend off a coordinated attack from both their principal enemies. Both Romans and Persians now threw all their energies into the drive for total victory, at the risk of total defeat. Entrusting the defence of the city walls to local commanders, Heraclius continued the campaign in East, where he scored further victories. In partnership with an army of Turks, the emperor took over control of Tbilisi in Georgia, 
Khosrow became so concerned he decided to remove Shabaraz, but his letter was intercepted by the Romans. The Persian general presented with the letter was convinced to remove his support for his king, perhaps even agreed a marriage alliance with the Romans. In mid-September 627, Heraclius set off from Tbilisi and headed into Persia. Then on 12th of December, the long campaign finally came to a head, with a decisive battle of Nineveh, reputedly on the same plain where Alexander the Great had defeated the Persian king Darius III at Galgamela in 331 BC. The precise movements of the battle are unknown, but what seems clear is that Heraclius chose a battlefield on open plains in order to deploy his soldiers in close order, which was still the main strength of the Roman army. The emperor surprised the Persians with a sudden attack and succeeded in surrounding the enemy and scoring a significant victory. As it was so late in the season, Heraclius might have been expected to consolidate his gains. Instead, he pushed further on, deeper into Persian territory. When the Romans continued to advance, Khosrow's position looked increasingly precarious. His kingdom was tired of the protracted war and disheartened by repeated failures. In a vain attempt to restore some of his lost prestige, Khosrow led an army to confront the Romans. But he was unable to muster sufficient manpower and was forced into a humiliating retreat back to his capital, Tessaphon. Discredited by this series of disasters, Khosrow was overthrown and killed in a coup led by his son, crowned Kavad II, who at once sued for peace, agreeing to withdraw from all occupied territories. Heraclius, with no doubt a tired army himself, was more than willing to accept a peace treaty based on the pre-conflict borders of the year 602. The emperor could finally make the long journey home, having achieved a remarkable victory. He restored the true cross to Jerusalem in a majestic ceremony, and when he arrived back in Constantinople, his people are said to have celebrated for nine days and nine nights. The new Persian king died after a reign of just eight months, leading to a civil war from 628 to 632, during which there were a total of at least ten claimants to the throne of Persia, including Heraclius's new ally, Shabaraz. Heraclius is considered one of the greatest emperors for his campaign against Persia. His empire had teetered on the edge of extinction and could have gone the same way as the West. Instead, it were to survive for another eight centuries. Edward Gibbon, in his work The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, wrote, Quote, Since the days of Scipio and Hannibal, no bolder enterprise has been attempted than that which Heraclius achieved for the deliverance of the empire. Unquote. However, while the Byzantine-Persian War raged on, something remarkable was happening to the south in Arabia. Next week I will tell the story of the birth and the rise of Islam. Taking advantage of the two exhausted empires, after their epic struggle, Arab forces, inspired by a new religion, were about to sweep through the Middle East. Before I go, I'd like to tell you that this podcast is now registered with the website www.historypodcasters.com. 
I highly recommend the site on which you can find many other podcasts dedicated to history. If you have time, please review this podcast on that website or on iTunes. Please join me next week for the Battle of Yamuk. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.